And my notes are up there, so I'm going to use those. If that's helpful to you, then you follow along. Otherwise, you can just listen. I apologize in advance if that means you see the back of my head now and then. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, when Jonathan, uh, we had this conversation, as Jonathan said, about p- potentially coming here for ministry. And it got to the point where he said, well, you need to come and preach with the view. I said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, you know, what will I preach about? And he tapped away at his computer and looked up and said, Ezra 4. And I, and I was thinking, oh, you know, a gospel would have been good, or, or a parable. Let's, let's, the parable of the sower would be, would be just fine, you know. Or if it's the Old Testament, let's do Daniel and his den, or Joseph and his dream coat, or something like that, yeah? Um, I didn't say any of that, of course. He gave me a very confident look back and said, of course, Ezra 4. Ezra 4! Ezra 4, yeah, that's the, that's the one between Ezra 3 and Ezra 5. Yeah, of course, I know. But, so, but it, is, it is true, isn't it, that... Um, Sometimes the Old Testament especially seems another time and another place. It seems quite bizarre with battles, kingly overthrows, rebellions, family backstabbing, the wipeout of entire net towns and nations at a time. Uh, all sorts of rules about being clean and unclean and uh, all kinds of names. No more, no, more, no more so than in this book, I think. And yet, if, uh, if we believe that the God of the Old Testament... Uh, 500 years before Christ is the same God of our land today in 2016, then there must be something here for us too. And it's in the Bible as well. So, um, bizarre world, but same God. We'll find out. And I know some of you have been, uh, some of you have been studying Ezra in house groups, I heard on Sunday night. And uh, most of you hopefully have been here for the previous sermons. Ezra tells of people who were different People who determined not to be the same as the people around them. And because of that, they faced antagonism, opposition, and some persecution as well. But rather than jump straight in, I'm going to actually step back and uh, let's just look at where this story occurs in God's big story, the unfolding story of the Bible and the unfolding story of which your story and my story is part. This is old ground, but I would rather make the mistake of reminding us of what we already know than assuming we're all on the same page and finding that people perhaps aren't. So where to start with God's big story? Well, let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis tells us God created a, a world, a perfect world, teeming with life and beauty, stunning in its beauty. Uh, but by page three of that, of that story, a murder has already taken place. The world has already changed in a, in a way that is very difficult to change back. And suddenly, pain and frustration and regret are the themes of the Bible, suddenly. But God actually doesn't leave it at that. God says, God thinks of a plan and says that a rescue plan to bring the world back to what it should be. And so deep within enemy territory, God says, I will raise up a nation and a man under a man called Abraham I will raise up a nation that will be a light to all nations to bring, this, to, to, to bring this world back to what it should be. So God raises up this man called Abraham and makes promises to him. He says, Abraham, how many stars can you see? Abraham says, I can't count them. God says, that's how many descendants you'll, you will have. Abraham, how many stars can you see? Abraham says, Lord, there's too many. I can't number them. God says, that's how many descendants you will have makes promises, covenant promises to Abraham and to the people of Israel who come from Abraham. So the story moves forward. And around 1500 BC, 
1,500 years before Christ, the Israelites, the nation of Israel from Abraham, are slaves in, in Egypt under a, under a man we call Pharaoh, who was the Pharaoh. Uh, things move on. There are miracles and wonders and a man called Moses and the people uh, escape. They leave the city, uh, the country of Egypt and travel to a new land, a promised land. But it's not a straightforward journey. It takes 40 years of wandering or in desert places, all sorts of things going on, all sorts of complaints from the people. But God is shaping and molding these people to bring them back. And so God uh, establishes the nation of Israel around Jerusalem, um, around this time. And eventually, at around 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Christ, the nation of Israel is settled and under a man called David, King David. And at this point in their history, they are at the peak, the very pinnacle of, uh, of their time. There is peace, there is prosperity, there is order, there is rule, and um, they're at their very peak. But, as we find out, David is only a man, and he fails. He commits adultery, he commits murder, and the nation of Israel are only people, they fail. In fact, as we will see, the temptation is that they become the same as those around them. They eventually become the same as those around them. And so, they've already been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and so for the second time in their history, God gives them over to another nation and says, you will be slaves again. And so for the second time in their history, the nation of Israel is carted off to a new land. This time it's Babylon, or what we today would call Iraq. And they're in this uh, nation of Babylon for 50, 60, 70 years, but God still remembers his promise to Abraham right at the beginning and says, you will, you will be saved. You will not only be saved, you will be the vehicle of salvation for all nations. And so God brings... Uh, these people back and opens the way for them to come back from Babylon to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding their city. And this is where we find these little books of Ezra and Nehemiah about rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. Now, of course, um, God's story continues. And if we were to carry on past 500 BC, 400, 300, 200, through the Greeks, Alexander the Great, through the Romans, eventually to around 0 AD, where God does something completely unpredictable. He enters his story himself, but not as a warrior, not as a king. actually comes as a baby and as a man called Jesus. And then God takes that forward, that story forward. He's always pushing the story forward to its end, which is also in the Bible. But we will start right here, where this people come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they start this rebuilding that we read about in this little book of Ezra. Okay. So the first question that I would ask is, why are you building a temple? Because you've come back for, after 600, uh, 600 years BC, you've come back from slavery, um, along from Ezra and Nehemiah, everything is destroyed. The, school, the commerce is destroyed, destroyed, the infrastructure is destroyed, the walls are destroyed, their houses are destroyed, their places of government, their public buildings, all destroyed. And they say, let's build a temple. Which sounds a bit, well, why don't you build you know, something more useful? Perhaps some homes, perhaps some commerce, perhaps some sewage systems, perhaps some water. But they say, let's build a temple. What's all that about? Why is it so important to them to build the temple? Almost the first thing they do. 
Well, it's not about uh, just the fact that it was a great building, although it was. It's not just about that. See, the temple in the Old Testament uh, was the dwelling place, place of God. And um, it, this whole thing is about God's presence and where, where is God's presence. See, through the Old Testament, uh, God has a specific dwelling place. In Genesis, God walks physically alongside Adam and Eve. Uh, in Exodus, when they leave Egypt, God is within the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Later on in, in Exodus, God is, God's dwelling place is in a tent, which sounds odd, but God's dwelling place was in a tent, and then it was on a mountain. And finally, when they settled in Jerusalem, it is the temple, that is the dwelling place of God. Uh, and that is where the people, what well, is what the people rely on for forgiveness of their sins. It becomes uh, an, important, uh, an important part of their, of their faith and their religious life. Um, every time they do something wrong, there's a priest who can sacrifice for them, sacrifice a lamb or something else, and um, that works, but the problem is it also leads to a kind of a mechanical, formulaic, mechanistic view of God that whatever we do wrong, it, it, it's okay, because there's always a lamb somewhere around, uh, and we can just sort that out. So don't worry about it. It became a tick-box religion, and it was this that Jesus railed against so strongly with the Pharisees and the teachers of his day that made it into just a set of rules and tick boxes. As long as you do this, don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about mercy, justice. Just make sure you got the lamb. So at this time in their, in their history, um, it was really important that the dwelling place of God should be established. Question, where is God today then? Not a rhetorical question. Where do you think God is? If God has been in all those places, where is he today then? Everywhere is a good answer, yeah, omnipresent. But specifically where? Yeah, I, I think that's true. That um, post-Jesus and post-Pentecost, um, especially with the, with the giving of God's spirit, God says, my temple now is with you. And Paul says, doesn't he, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, you are the temple. Actually, it's you plural. You are the temple now. This is you. This is, you are the dwelling place of God. Um, so, that's, um, that's that. Let's just read, because I want to look at these verses a little bit, hopefully having laid some, uh, some foundation. Just the first part of this, and deliberately missing out some of the uh, more difficult parts later on, which Jonathan led us through valiantly. But I'll avoid so, this is what happens. The people have come back. They want to build this temple. This is why it's important. And this is what happens. There's opposition. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, that's Israel to us, heard that the exiles were building the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part in building, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Syria, the king of Persia, commanded us. King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. 
They didn't like it, the people around. So then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans. During the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's about 15 years of discouragement. Um, At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, these people who were still opposing Israel lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the king and in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. So then the letter that they wrote was pretty clever. Um, it talked about um, re- re- uh, this rebellious nation of Israel and at the time um, the Persian Empire was beset with rebellions. They talked about bringing shame on the king of Assyria. They talked about bringing um, lack of revenue. No taxes would be paid. All kinds of things were worked up. But let's um, have, a, have a look, step through some of this. So, the opposition is from the people around, okay, who actually are Samaritans. It doesn't say that in uh, Ezra, but they're what we call Samaritans, what the Jews called Samaritans which is basically a mixed-race people and a mixed-religion people. Samaritans were made up of people who were left behind when Israel went into exile, and other people who came in and intermarried with them and mixed with them, and they all swapped religions and had a bit of a we'll we'll worship everything that we've got kind of mentality. And uh, this is one of the reasons, the opposition, why the Samaritans became so detestable and hated by, by the Jews. The Jews really didn't like Samaritans. And in fact, Jesus played on that, didn't he? Uh, at least twice. Do you remember two occasions when Jesus either talks about Samaritans or brings up Samaritans? Good Samaritan, which is an astonishing story because it's the most hated people we could imagine. The other place? Yeah, great, yeah. The Samaritan woman. Jesus talks not only to a woman, uh, but to a Samaritan woman. And so you can see that actually this, this, uh, this despising, this hatred of the Samaritans goes back to 500 years before uh, and all this opposition that occurred. And it went something, the dialogue between the Samaritans and the, and the Jews went something like this in a, in a very, very summarized form. They say to Israel, to the Jews, we like your God as well. Look, we're worshipping your God too. And... Um, this um, plurality of religions is something we, we can still find today. In fact, um, I mentioned earlier, uh, my parents were from India, and my mother's from a Christian family, but my father was a Hindu priest. And in his later days, they were separated. I'd visit him, and we, had, we used to have discussions about faith and religion. And he would say to me, quite, quite sort of upset, he'd say, look, you know, I worship Jesus as well. And sure enough, in his little household shrine, were all these little statues, and there was a statue of a Jesus um, with a, with, as a shepherd holding a lamb with a, with a kind of a stick and a little halo around him. And, and he's genuinely saying, what, what's the problem? We can worship all these things, can't we? We can all be the same. And it's, it's the same thing that they were saying. Let's, let's just, we, all, we worship your God as well. What's wrong with that? Of course we do. You should become like us. 
you should become the same as us, is what they were saying. And that would have been the easy thing to do. Let's become like them, because it will make life easier. But they say, no, you don't have a part in this. This is our temple for our God. And then they use the, the very clever ploy to say, it's actually King Cyrus told us to build the temple, not you. So we're also following his instructions. They don't like it. They have all this opposition, start this opposition, and they then write this letter. And um, everything comes to a halt. Or does it? Actually, when you read the start of the next chapter, you find that actually they carried on building the temple, perhaps not as openly or publicly, but they carried on. Anyway, this was roughly the argument that, went, uh, that, that they faced. Let's just um, dig a little bit deeper into what was it about the Jews, about Israel, that the Samaritans disliked so much and took such a dislike to? What really um, got them upset? What really raised the, the hackles of their hairs? First of all, three things probably. First of all, there's something different about these people. They don't want to be like us. They don't want to accept our help, which is a bit offensive. Second thing, which was a bit strange, they have one God, only one God, and they honour him, and they won't be moved from that, which is a bit strange. And thirdly, as they found out, if we oppose them, make up stories about them, write letters about them, they just get on with God's work anyway. So there's something different about these people. They only have one God, and if we oppose them, they get on with God's work anyway. And then we see these 15 years of discouragement, rejection, taunts, and bribes. This was the opposition faced by Israel in their day, 500 years before Christ, roughly 2,500 years ago. How does that play? How does that reflect into our world today? Do we see that kind of opposition? Because we're not actually building a temple, but we do see opposition. So let's look at the opposition today and see if it's similar and see if um, the response of Israel to that opposition, if we can learn from that. Opposition today, I think, comes generally from two sources, outside and inside. Uh, opposition from outside is largely um, secularism. So it's the world that we live in where um, religion is downplayed, um, there's very few places in the world as secular as Northern Europe today. A great apathy, God is irrelevant. Um, if you want to, to do God, then do God in the privacy of your own home, please. Don't bring him to work. Don't bring him into our neighborhood, into our friendships. Don't talk about that because it's a bit inconvenient and awkward. There's also a great materialism which kind of insulates us and insulates our society against the need for God. And there's even, there's a great ignorance. You know, we used to be able to rely on the fact that people would know the Bible stories. People would know something about Scripture, but they don't know anything. Uh, so much so that a friend of mine in Withenshaw who works for Gideon's uh, comes to our church. He, he was in a school recently. And a young boy, about 15, not being funny or, 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 or you know, deliberately obtuse or anything, when he was offering the Gideon's Bible, genuinely said, what is a Bible? What was the Bible? Because he's heard this word. Nobody actually bothered to explain it. So that's the culture that we live in. That's one sort of opposition, a kind of apathy. There's also uh, a direct and specific opposition, though, which is a new atheism post-9-11. Up to 9-11, it was pretty much sec the first one, secularism. 
after 9-11, where we all get tarred with that brush of 9-11, we all get tarred with the same brush that religion poisons everything. And people think that faith is something that ISIS do. And so that's given rise to um, a, a new a movement. It's not, actually, it's not, a, it's not a, new, uh, a new philosophy, a new movement. What's new is the animosity. What's new is the level of aggression at which new atheism, new atheism is now coming against all faith and Christianity in particular. Not that they hate Christians more than anybody else, but it's happening in the West. The Christianity is our inherited religion, our inherited faith. So, um, and, and the thinking is everything has naturalistic causes, everything arises um, out of uh, laws of nature. There's no need for God. Religion poisons everything. And there's this uh, replacement God of what they call scientism, which basically means that in the end, Science can explain everything. You don't need God, because science will explain everything. And there's another word that people have come up with, technicism, which is in the end, technology will solve all our problems. We don't need God. Technology will do it. Um, Google, some years ago, started their death project to overcome death. Uh, a number of um, innovative Silicon Valley companies, um, my company's based in Silicon Valley, are looking at the problem of death and how do we undermine death. We can talk about that later, perhaps. Over coffee. Yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> does tend to focus the mind. But the, this is opposition from the outside in, in general terms. And you see it in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, where people don't want to know. People, people think you're being narrow-minded. People may be looking for uh, to, a, a way to ridicule uh, our faith or, or waiting for you to, to mess up in some way and say, well, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? But opposition, uh, well, actually, yeah, you should become like us is, is the general ethos out there in the world today. You should become like us, which is what the Samaritans said to the Israelites. Don't be so narrow-minded. You know, what's good for him is good for him, and what's good for her is good for her. You can't compare those things. Just be a little bit um, laid back about this, and don't be so uh, objectionable. If somebody asks you um, to bake a cake that say, that supports gay marriage, we support gay marriage, what's wrong with that? Just do that. Don't be so narrow-minded. You should become like us, is the ethos in the world today. And then we can all just get on and be friends. Uh, New Ageism is a bit different, I think, but we can talk about it after. I wouldn't in this, in this opposition. What about opposition from the inside as well? Because... That's, um, th there's a more insidious form of opposition which, which actually we lay ourselves open to uh, in, our, in our society. Sneaks up on us. We never actually turn away from God, but we assemble other gods, like my dad did and like the Samaritans did. And what do I mean by that? Well, gods of our career, our latest pursuit, even our children that we increasingly put on higher and higher pedestals. Nothing wrong with any of those things. They're all good things that God has given us. But when we put them first, when we say, this is my ambition, this is what I want to do, this is what my life's about, we effectively displace God in a very subtle way. And a hard-heartedness in our society today, a desire to be the same as those around us, which would be so convenient. It comes through the back door. We, it sneaks up on us. Um, but the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Peter tells us in 1 Peter, 
your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, <clears throat> looking for someone to devour. The trouble is, it doesn't sound like a lion. It sounds like the voice of reason around us saying, why don't you just relax and not object to this and just be okay about this. You don't have to wear your cross at work, whatever it is. Uh, and it doesn't, um, it doesn't sound like a lion. It doesn't look like a lion. It looks like people being reasonable. And the risk is, as was the risk to the Israelites in 540 BC specifically, that we absorb our culture until we are indistinguishable from it. The risk is that we absorb all around us, everything around us, until we are the same as, the same as it. Being part of society is really important. We don't want to be seen as completely strange people. You know, I don't think it's a good idea, personally, to have a sandwich board that says, um, wages of sin is death, because you're not a part of society. People don't regard you as part of society, and yet we have not to be the same as society. This is the balance. Um, Jesus used many analogies. One of them was yeast. Yeast is part of the bread, and yet, separate from it, it has a transformational, disruptive power. Little is great in God's kingdom. A tiny amount of, uh, of goodness, a single word of prayer, a single word of forgiveness can produce huge changes. Opposition today is as much then choices we make as people who we think are opposing us. It's not just about new atheists and people who, who argue against us on the, on the internet. People should be able to look at us as Christians. They should be able to look at us and say, there's something different about these people. I don't know about you, but um, I was brought up a secular Hindu. And um, when I went to university, um, I wasn't that impressed with the arguments of Christians. And I remember going along with Christians because it, it, they took a liking to me. They said, here's somebody that we can you know, work on over a period of months and years. <laughs> took me to these meetings. It was great. He got... You know, he got Nice people taking you around, some good-looking Christian girls taking you to these places, give you cakes and coffee, and what's, what's not to like? And um, I remember at the end of this one particular meeting, they said, what do you think about all this? And I said, yeah, thanks for bringing me. I'm even more convinced it's all a load of rubbish now. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. But what impressed me was actually their character. What impressed me was their concern for me. Why, why are these people bothered about me? when I'm having such a go at them, having fun with them. Um, there was something different about those people, more about how they did things than what they did, more about how they talked than what they actually said. We need to be, yes, an integral part of our society, and yet we need to be somehow separate from it. And that's the challenge that Israel faced in 540 BC, and it's what we face today. We need to be part of our society. We need to be seen as part of society and yet somehow distinct. So, let's draw this together. And uh, one way, a great way, I think, of um, looking at the Old Testament is to look at what Jesus said. Because Jesus often reflected on the Old Testament. Sometimes he changed the laws of the Old Testament. Sometimes he actually um, restated them. But we can look at the Old Testament through Jesus. We live in... Uh, we're blessed, we live in fortunate times because we live after Jesus and we can look at these strange passages in the Old Testament through Jesus and see, well, what did Jesus say about that? Because that's paramount. Well, there was something 
different about the nation of Israel at that moment, wasn't there? Before that, they had lots of problems. They kept falling away from God. They kept saying, yeah, you're our God, but you know what? We like Baal as well. Yeah, you're our God, but we want to marry these other people from these other nations as well. They kept failing. And after this moment, they will fail again. After this time in Ezra and Nehemiah, they fail again. But just at this point, they're doing the right thing. Uh, we get this snapshot of Israel doing the right thing. Something is something special about them at this time. And yes, their thinking is affirmed by Jesus, and we see that in a number of places. So the first thing the Samaritans didn't like about Israel, there's something different about these people. That's what Jesus says in many places. But for example, you are the salt of, of the world. You are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its savor, it's no good for anything. You've got to bring out the taste, the best taste of the society that we're in. You are the light of the world. Nobody, a city on a hill cannot be hidden and nobody lights the light and puts it under a bowl. And then he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is how Jesus tells us to be different. Wherever we are, to sprinkle a little salt, to shed a little light. Um, they had one God and they honoured him. And that's what Jesus says, you can only have one God in a number of uh, occasions, and this one where he says, um, no one can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Not, you must not, or you should not, or it's very difficult, but you cannot. What other gods are we raising up that we are, that we are investing our lives in to the detriment of the one God that we serve? And uh, if we oppose them, they get on with God's work. Well, Jesus said, you will find opposition. You will find opposition. Um, and I think it's John 16 where he says, um, you, in this world you will find trouble. In this world you will find trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will find trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a promise. Not that God has abandoned the world, but there will be trouble in this world. And if we're not seeing any opposition at all, I would ask another question. Do people even know you're a Christian? If, if we're not seeing any opposition from anybody in all of our lives, do people know what we stand for? I'm going to summarize um, just a, a couple of the things that we've talked about. Israel were at a crossroads. Coming back from, from exile, broken cities, broken houses, broken schools, broken public buildings, not a lot to do, not a lot to go on, and the people around them say, we'll help you, just, just become like us. And they stood up for themselves and, and for their God and said, actually, we need to be distinct, because that was the problem before. That's why we went to Babylon. They remembered. A peace in Christ and trouble in this world will coincide and should coincide. We should expect to see trouble and problems. Jesus said so. Opposition, as we've said, comes from outside, but we have to be aware of opposition from inside, competing priorities in our own lives. And we are called to be part of society. We need to be seen as part of society, doers in this society, thinkers for this society, people who give for this society unselfishly, whether people are becoming Christians or not, and yet somehow distinct from it. Do people look at you or look at me and say, there's something different about them? in a positive way. You know, we don't want to be weirdos with the sandwich board. Or Is there something different about them? There's something different about these people. Something different. Something that intri intrigues me. 
there's quite a, quite a bit there and um, a few challenges, but it doesn't have to be that hard. It can be the simplest thing. And I want to end um, with a very short story from a book by Tony Campolo, which is uh, called Everything You've Heard is Wrong. And there's an account he gives of an experience. It's set, it's very short, uh, and it's set in a Bowery mission, which is a mission in America, but it might just be New York, to homeless men, which are basically alcoholics. So to al- alcoholic men in New York. And here's what he says. A drunk named Joe was miraculously converted at a Bowery mission. Prior to his conversion, Joe had the reputation of being a dirty tramp for whom there was no hope, just a miserable existence in the ghetto. But following his conversion to a new life with God, everything changed with Joe. Joe became the most caring person that anybody associated with the mission had ever known. Joe spent his days and nights hanging out at the mission, doing whatever needed to be done. There was never any task that was too lowly for Joe to take on. There was never anything he was asked to do that he considered beneath him, whether it was cleaning up the vomit left by some violently sick alcoholic or scrubbing the toilets after careless men left the bathroom filthy. Joe did whatever he was asked with a soft smile on his face and with a seeming gratitude for the chance to help. He didn't mind what people said. He didn't mind the sneers or the back chat from other men. He just got on with it. He could be counted on to feed feeble men who wandered into the mission off the street and to undress and tuck into men, tuck into bed men who were too out of it to take care of themselves. His faith had transformed not only his heart, but his actions. Now, one evening during the week, the director of the mission was delivering his usual evangelistic address in the evening to the usual crowd of still and sullen men with drooped heads. And there was one man who looked up, a new man who had just come in a few weeks ago. He came down the aisle to the altar and knelt to pray, crying out for God to help him change. This repentant drunkard kept shouting the same line. Oh God, he said, make me more like Joe. Oh God, will you make me like Joe? Please God, make me more like Joe. The director of the mission, on hearing this, came over and said to the man, Son, I think it would be better if you prayed, make me more like Jesus. The man looked up at the director with a quizzical expression on his face and said, Is Jesus like Joe? You might be the only Jesus that people ever know. We live in a society where there's no knowledge of church, no knowledge of scripture, what's the Bible? And it's into this world that we are called to be different. You might be the only Jesus that people ever know in the workplace, in your neighborhood, maybe in your family. The only Jesus that people will ever see. And so for you, it it can start with simple things. It probably isn't feeling up sick. Maybe it is, but it, it probably is being the one who's known as an encourager, being the one that people know they can come to because you listen. 
being the one who's always willing to help, to lend a hand, who'll always offer the sponsorship for the whatever it is. We need to be that person. There is something different about Joe. Is there something different about us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, looking at this text from hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, thousands of years ago. But thank you, Lord, that you are the same God today in our world, in Britain and in Lynn. Father, we ask you, Lord, to help us this week to be that people who can sprinkle a little salt on that conversation, who can shed a little light into that situation where somebody needs a little bit of help. Lord, you call your people to be different. Help us, Father, to be a different people this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.